as people begin to practice with, understand that they it is possible to move through and beyond trauma, that they can quiet the agitation, the anxiety, the sleeplessness that comes when you've been traumatized, that they can also free themselves up when they're in the freeze response, then it becomes so much easier to use all the other techniques we teach, the mental imagery that can be used in so many ways, the drawings, we use drawings, and for people who can write written exercises so people can discover what's inside themselves and bring it out. We encourage people to keep a journal. Um, we use um, genograms, family trees, to help people explore both the sources of the trauma and the sources of the strength. So welcome back. Season two of the Full Capacity Living podcast is live. We are back with an incredible guest to start off the 2022 season of this podcast. James Gordon, MD of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine out of Washington, D.C., joins me for a fascinating conversation. His career spans the decades with truly innovative work in the world of psychology and integrative and complementary approaches to trauma. The Center for Mind-Body Medicine was founded in 1991 by Dr. Gordon, a Harvard-educated professor of psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown University Medical School and former chairman of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy under Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. In this conversation, we delve into his path from traditional medical school, where he always felt a bit disconnected to the traditional medical model of patient care, to his path of learning from visionaries in the world of alternative medicine, shamanic traditions, indigenous practices, and mind-body techniques. It's really a fascinating conversation. So, you know, he shares his work over the years and research in working in psychiatric hospital-based units without medications or restraints and the healing that occurred. His work has taken him all over the world using mind-body techniques to begin healing populations of people who've experienced trauma in all areas. What he's found is that trauma, which is defined as injury to the mind, body, and spirit, comes to everyone at some point. If we haven't experienced it by now, we likely will. One of the most beautiful quotes in his book, Transforming Trauma, is that trauma and suffering are the soil in which wisdom and compassion grow. And if you take nothing else from this podcast, that would be the number one thing because we're always all going to experience it. And if we can transform that into wisdom and compassion, what a beautiful thing to think about. In this podcast, you will find wisdom, incredible stories, and tools to take home with you and use right now. I am so honored to be starting season two of the Full Capacity Living podcast with Dr. James Gordon. So without further ado, enjoy our conversation. Thank you for being here. Okay, welcome, Dr. Gordon. I really appreciate you being here and I'm excited for this conversation because the work that you have done over so many years is so powerful to so many groups of people. And you know what I'd love to start with is just finding out a little bit about your path 
from the traditional world of, of Harvard Medical School into integrative work and just some of the um, tr non-traditional things that you do, although they should be more traditional or talked about as more traditional. <laughs> well, I, I think my classmates at Harvard Medical School would, would say to you, we always knew he was headed somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> because from, from the beginning, uh, for various reasons, I was very sensitive to what didn't work uh, in medical school for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of it was a, a kind of, uh, e even though my teachers and my classmates were, were so smart, there was a kind of narrowness to the, to the worldview that I could feel even then, you know, I'd, I'd gone to, I'd gone to Harvard College, I majored in English, I had lots of, I took the sciences, but had lots of time to kind of let my mind expand and to think about possibilities and alternatives. And, uh, and I, I didn't see that kind of spirit of inquiry in medical school. I saw very good science, but right. within a, a fairly narrow framework. So that was one piece. And then the other is that as soon as we began to see patients, uh, I didn't like the way patients were being treated. Mm. They, we would go on rounds, and I'm sure you've been through this, standing around the bed, talking mm -hmm. about somebody as if they were not even there, as if they were sort of as if as if the bed were empty, and it, oh. it, it felt wrong to me. And, and yeah. by the time I got onto my clinical rotations, where I was working on psychiatric and medical wards, I, I could see how damp as opposed to just observing it occasionally as I did in first and second year, I could see how damaging and limiting that kind of approach was. Mm -hmm. That we didn't give people the time they needed uh, when they were going through terrible crises or in terrible pain. And um, we didn't understand the context of their lives. And we didn't give them anything. And this began to occur to me a little bit later, but in medical school that we didn't give them anything to do to help themselves. It was all dependent on us. And that seemed, uh, it, it seemed short-sighted and, and it limited uh, the therapeutic possibilities because already by third year in medical school, well, actually right from the beginning, I, I was interested in psychiatry. I was interested in sort of the richness and complexity of the way human beings lived and their behavior. And I was interested in what was the path to healing? And how could, and this is, the, this is I suppose, traditional, yeah. um, how could an interaction with another human being itself be healing? Mm -hmm. And it's both traditional that we talk about the art of medicine in Western medicine, but it's traditional in a much deeper sense. And I was already studying shamans and other traditional healers. And, and, and I could see that, um, there was an there there was an understanding of the power of that interaction and of the power of hope, and of the power of mobilizing people to understand and help themselves. So that you know that's that's been that understanding that vision that experience personal as well as professional has really uh, kind of shaped what I've done ever since. That, I think that's truly phenomenal. I mean, if you step back even before medical school and that that really sort of liberal sort of way of, of opening your mind and learning before you even got into medical school, but, but even going further back, 
I mean, is there a connection? Where do you feel like that really started to come for you when you were even a younger person? Well, I, I think there were a couple of places. One is my father was a surgeon and um, he was not an easy man as mm -hmm. many surgeons are not. <laughs> they may be very gifted as my father was, but at home he was a bit of a tyrant. And, yeah. Yeah. but when I saw him with his patients uh, and he had patients from every class and every strata and every ethnicity in New York City, from the sort of highest society people to people in public hospitals. And when I saw him, particularly in the public hospitals, and I saw the quality of his relationship with some of his patients, I was so moved mm. by it. It brought out absolute best in him. Right. And it gave me a sense that in addition to being highly skilled, which he was, uh, and highly intuitive, which he denied. He mm. said, it's all science, it's all science, okay. <laughs> but he also could be enormously kind. And that relationship that he had with his patients was very, very touching to me. So that was there. Um, also, you know, as a kid in high school, I read Freud's introductory lectures. Uh, I was, I think, I think I was working as an office boy during the summer and on New York subways reading Freud's introductory oh, lectures. I thought, this is great. This is, this is exploring how early life can affect later life. Mm -hmm. and how this relationship between this, this man, Freud, and his patients, and how them discovering who they were through telling their stories and telling about their experience to him, how that could be healing. So I had that sense. And then the other thing that was very important influence to me, particularly as I started medical school, was civil rights movement. Mm, yeah. Because I had a sense of the connection um, between Black people struggling for their rights in the South, right to vote, right to eat in a lunch counter, and patients who were deprived of their rights. Mm. And in a much more minor key, much less serious, myself as a medical student, with people trying to force me into a mold which didn't really fit. So I, I think that larger social context also uh, influenced who I became, and I became active in civil rights and anti-war movement, and that was just part of my identity, part of who I was. Yeah, I, I love hearing that because it just um, speaks to just this innate nature of of what you just bring to all of the work that you're doing, but also just being having that awareness and, and connection to what's going on around you. So such a beautiful combination. Yeah, yeah, and I I appreciate you sharing that um, and. Also, the fact that you had a challenging life at home. I think so often when I talk to people who've gotten into the work of, you know, whether it's integrative uh, medicine or functional medicine or, or um, practices in mind-body healing, it, it comes from a personal perspective. And I think that's really powerful to share with people that are listening to know that, that what, you are, what you experienced and some of the healing that you needed to do um, informs your work because we're all sort of on this path, right? We don't have it all figured out. I certainly don't. I'm always saying I'm I'm a work in progress. So when you think about like, I really want to get into the topic of the the transforming trauma and the book that you've written, the transformation, which now is in paperback as transforming trauma and and the path to heal um, to health and healing. So so 
Tell me a little bit about what your definition is of trauma, because I think that sometimes people think it has to be this intense thing that happened to me. You know, I had to have been in the Iraq war, which certainly is very traumatic or have a, a very traumatic childhood experience, but there's more to it than that, right? Well, much, much more. And, and also that attempt to limit it and to categorize it. Again, that, that's part of the habit of West, the Western biomedical mind. Right. The Greeks, the word trauma means injury, injury to the body, mind, and spirit, uh, to one or the other, or actually when it happens to one, it almost always happens to the other. And also uh, when that trauma comes, it disrupts our social relations too, as well as our body and our mind and our spirit and our sense of who we are, meaning and purpose. And it comes to everyone. This is, this is a really important point that I make at the beginning of transforming trauma. That, uh, and then again, this is a traditional in the sense of aboriginal from the beginning understanding that human life has trauma in it. And then if you move forward into the sort of later, the, uh, as they call them, the axial age of great traditions like, like Buddhism and, uh, and others, this was the fundamental insight that Siddhartha Gautama, the young prince, had when he left the palace and went off to, you know, to, to, to find another way. He understood, the, the Siddhartha Gautama who became the Buddha, mm -hmm. he understood that suffering comes to all of us. His parents wanted to keep him from suffering. Right, they wanted to protect him from it. That exactly. Was, yeah. As many of us do as well as parents. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's so hard not to do. It's so hard not to do. But he discovered that it was everywhere and that if it didn't come to us early in life, because, um, and then something, this is me sort of marrying my insights to the Buddhas. Um, if it didn't come early in life because of a congenital abnormality or a horribly abusive family or poverty and violence, it would likely come uh, in young adulthood or midlife with losses, mm -hmm. uh, losses of relationships, uh, significant difficulties in making our way in the world, the illness and perhaps death of grandparents and parents, and uh, or divorce. Right. Over half the marriages in the United States end in divorce, uh, including my marriage. And uh, I've yet to find, I mean, the, the tabloids occasionally say that, oh, no, everything's fine with Jen and Ben or whoever. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, they're, you know they're yeah, they're getting divorced, but it's all well. It's not. <laughs> it's right, right. At, at least in my experience, I, I have yet to see. Uh, some of them are more amicable. Mine was reasonably amicable, but it's still traumatic to to sure. to lose something you've invested so much in. And if it doesn't come then, if trauma doesn't come then, it surely comes as we grow old and frail and lose people we love and face our own impending death. So trauma is a part of life. And comparing, people often say, well, that's little t or that's big t. I said, hey, it's, it's trauma. That doesn't serve anyone. Mm -hmm. The point is, what's happened? Um, how do you deal with it? How do you bring yourself back into balance? And what can you learn from it? And how can you grow through it? Whether you've lost 21 members of your family in a war, as people I've worked with have, 21 or more, wow. or whether you've lost a marriage. Uh, or suffered a terrible disappointment at work, 
all of those are traumatic events and, and comparing them is a fool's game. Fool's game, definitely. And what I also hear from what you're saying, or at least what popped up in my mind as you're saying this, is that knowing this, knowing that at some point trauma is going to be part of your story, that you have more self-compassion for other people. If that hasn't happened to you yet, and you know that it's coming around the corner for all of us, then the compassion around someone else experiencing trauma is probably um, heightened to know that that trauma just ex is experienced by all of us. I think there was something that you said in um, one of the podcasts I was reviewing that said, trauma and suffering are the soil in which wisdom and compassion grow. That's a good line. And I believe it's true still. <laughs> yeah, you said it. And it is a beautiful line. That's why I wrote it down, because I just think that that's, that's, that's really just um, a core of what you're talking about. It's you, you create that wisdom, compassion, um, even from all the stories that, that you know. I love the connection that you're talking about with the aboriginals and Buddha, because this stuff is not new. And I find myself thinking that each time I talk to somebody, these are things that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And I am very curious to hear your connection with shamanism and how that entered into your, your life. Well, it um, it started with reading when I was in when I was in medical school, and I was going through a very difficult time. Uh, I was trying to figure out why am I I taking a year off from medical school. I was trying to figure out what am I doing and should I go back. And my girlfriend and I had broken up, and the combination of the two put me into uh, was traumatic, and I became significantly depressed. And um, got into therapy at that time. And the, the therapist whom I chose, and this is perhaps a, a word that may be important to people who are you know, tuning into this podcast, was somebody I felt a real connection mm. with. I, I was fortunate enough, it was a, a man named Robert Coles, who uh, was a psychiatrist at Harvard, but his uh, main work and passion was with helping the black kids in New Orleans who were integrating the schools there. And Ruby Bridges is somebody whom some of our listeners may know about because she's become very well known. She was one of those little girls. Oh, wow. And he wrote about her and I was very moved by his writing about her and by his compassion and by his commitment to these kids and to justice and civil rights movement. And at first I got in touch with him to see if I could work with him on his research. He said, no, you know, we had a nice talk. And he said, no, I'm, I'm just writing right now. I really don't need anything like that. But then when I got in trouble, I called him up and uh, I was in New York and he was in Cambridge, I guess. And uh, he was on the phone with me for two hours. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh my, I would, I would start brings tears to my eyes remembering it because it was such an act of kindness to me. And um, so I went back to Cambridge and <laughs> I'd given up my apartment. So I moved into a furnished room and uh, got into therapy. And, and he, he was very important to me in helping me to look uh, outside of conventional psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And one of the places he suggested that I look is toward as it happens, psychiatrists who were studying shamanism. Geza Roheim, probably most people don't know, was a 
psychiatrist, anthropologist, who was lived in that world. And I, I started reading. I said, this is fascinating. These people, these shamans are doing something like what Bob and I are doing here in our, in our little office at the Harvard Health Services. Yeah. They're doing it in the, you know, in the jungle or on the, you know, on the plains or in the mountains. So I started getting interested there. And I also, he also, um, as we said in the 60s, he turned me on to R.D. Lang, mm. who was a psychiatrist who saw, uh, was, who I think was also influenced by shamanism, who saw that what we ordinarily call psychosis could be the opening to a greater understanding. And this is a shamanic insight okay. yeah. that Lang also had. And then, you know, when as time went on, whenever I had the opportunity to uh, learn from a traditional healer anywhere, uh, I, I would go find that person. Whether it was a curandero in the Bronx, you know, who is a you know traditional healer in the Latino community, or whether it was uh, later on Sangomas in Africa, traditional Zulu healers, and uh, later on still Native Americans. So all the, I felt like they, they know something that, uh, and of course, I recommend for people who are interested in this to read Jerome Frank's book, Persuasion and Healing, which I read probably when I was, I don't know, still in medical school, maybe I was resident, where he explicitly compares what we do in medicine and psychotherapy to what shamans do and shows all the common elements. It's a great book. Jer Jerry became a very good friend. He was on the advisory board at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. And he was a beautiful soul who was a professor at Johns Hopkins. And uh, he, he had this deep understanding of the connection between what we do as physicians, as therapists, as clinicians, and what our brothers and sisters who are uh, Aboriginals have all have done for tens of thousands of years. Tens of thousands of years, yeah. And, and we've lost that the way a little bit, right? Not a little bit, we've lost the way a lot. Quite. Well, yeah, because you look now it's at psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists are not sitting with people for more than 10 or 15 minutes. No. So much of their time is spent writing out prescriptions. Mm -hmm. It's no longer, not only is it no longer the kind of shamanic model, it's no longer the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic model, which whatever its limitations had the grace of spending time with people and helping them to understand themselves and helping them come to their own conclusions about how to help themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's, we it's, have lost, we have lost that connection and we need to bring it back. And and so, and which which is why your work is so, so important. And I, I think, you know, even for me, I, you know, my background is as a medical speech pathologist working in hospitals for many years. And what you described earlier about standing around the bed and talking about that person, as a, as a therapist who communicates with people and works on their communication skills, it was always so painful for me to see that. Um, you know, and if I were sitting there, I would I would bring them in and say, you know, I'd try to connect the patient to that group because, you know, I worked at, at a major medical facility where there were always five or six residents in every patient's room. And, and so that connection in terms of bringing that back and, and getting back on the path of what we've done, what has been done anciently for so long, you, you started out in that, that thinking, um, that, that mode of, of thinking that you wanted more integrative, more shamanic, more um, 
different than what, what traditional medical model was. And tell me about the trajectory going through where you worked at, um, you know, after medical school and your, your training there, and then kind of when you created the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Well, I, um, here's a, <laughs> interesting, as you're asking, after medical school, the, the question was, stay at Harvard, which most of my classmates wanted to do, and many, many did, or go somewhere else, start something new and different. And, and I wanted, a, I wanted a, a more open environment. Yeah. So for my internship, it was 1967. It was the summer of love. I went to San Francisco. Nice. <laughs> and I, there's a, a lot of stories about that. But the interesting story in this context was that in addition to working as a medical intern at Mount Zion Hospital, which I thoroughly enjoyed, because mm -hmm. um, I was really taking care of people, uh, and I liked doing that. I volunteered a couple nights a week at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I observed, and this is important to me, is that when the, there, there were tens or hundreds of thousands of young kids, runaways, throwaways, hippies, whatever you wanted to call them, who were in, in San Francisco at the time. And the majority of them seemed to be taking drugs about which they had very little knowledge and they would get in trouble. They'd be taking you know, LSD and situations that were not particularly friendly and they never dealt with any of their psychological issues. So understandably, many of them had very bad trips, mm -hmm. you know, terrifying hallucinations, suicidal ideas, et cetera. If they came to Mount Zion Hospital, which was a very good hospital, they would come into the emergency room, they'd be asked for information about their health insurance. <laughs> These uh. kids are, <laughs> then they would be put in an examining room with bright lights on, sit on an examining table, take their vital signs, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't treated badly, but they were treated in a very clinical way. And it, as if th this was a a kind of item of psychopathology, they're, they're, what they were experiencing. Yeah. And many of those kids got admitted to the psychiatric ward, usually not for long. Mm -hmm. The two nights a week I worked at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, the same kinds of kids would come into the free clinic. And there would be somebody there named Peter Rabbit or Frodo, as the as the hippie volunteers would call themselves. They say, hey man, you know, yeah, you're on a bad trip, but bad trips can become good trips. Come sit down. And they would sit on a pile of cushions and there'd be music. Maybe it'd be the Jefferson Airplane playing or the Grateful Dead and there'd be music. And, you know, if somebody got scared, the Peter Rabbit would put his arms around them and hold them. Only one kid in all the time that I was there ever had to go to a hospital. Wow. And I learned from these young, I mean, I was young too, I was 25 or so, 26. Um, but these hippies taught me how to work with people on bad trips. Mm -hmm. And they reinforced that um, dictum from psychedelic research was the importance of the set and the setting. Yeah. The importance of your attitude towards somebody and the environment in which you're working with them. So that they were actually doing kind of shamanic work. And that lesson never left me. And, and I brought the same lesson to my psychiatric residency. 
That's interesting. So that's a beautiful story. And I do definitely want to put a pin in the, the psychedelic piece because we can talk about that as we move forward. But tell me about when you brought it back to Mount Zion. How did that work out? Well, at Mount Zion, I, I wasn't in a position to, I mean, by that time I'd finished my, my psychiatric rotation. What it, all it did is just reminded me of how important set and setting were with all my patients and how important it was to spend time with people and to understand that no matter what they were going through, physical or psychological or spiritual, that it could be a path to greater understanding. So that consciousness was there. I came back East for my residency in psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And by the time I got to be, uh, I, I saw very clearly the significant <clears throat> limitations and dangers of electroconvulsive therapy uh, and of psychotropic medication for, but it was particularly for psychotic people. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give, I gave one person ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Sure. It was very disabling for her over a long period of time. Never again. Yeah. And I refused. Yeah. I said, no, I'm not going to do this. I didn't bond. realize, I mean, when I first realized that they actually still did that, I, I was, was quite shocked. I didn't, I thought that was an old practice that, that, but it's still happening. It's still happening. And there are people who say there, there is benefit. I, I would say it is the absolute, absolute last resort. <laughs> right, right, right. And also the psychotropic medicines, um, the, you know, the antipsychotic medicines, they had terrible side effects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back, back then people, you know, patients were, uh, people are not going to be able to see me, are they? This is only, a, this is a podcast. Yes, yes, yes. We're not posting. I'm sort of moving yet. my arms and my head around in strange, wild yeah. ways. It's tonic. People said, that's a symptom of schizophrenia. Well, it was not a symptom of schizophrenia. It was tardive yeah. dyskinesia. Yes. It was a, was a side, quote, side effect or effect of the medication that we were giving. It took a while, years. Yeah for psychiatry to figure it. So I brought that shamanic understanding or that humanistic understanding of the importance of the relationship, that dynamic psychiatry understanding. I'd read Frieda Fromm Reichman, Harry Stack Sullivan, as well as Lang, all the people, the wonderful book, still wonderful book, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden by Frieda Fromm Reichman, oh. about her, by Hannah Green actually, about Frieda Fromm Reichman's work with the, with, with the patient. So. I, I saw that it was possible to enter the world of psychotic people and to begin to help them move through that. And when it time, came time for me to be a chief resident, I, I was selected because I, I, was, I was good at what I did. I knew what I was doing, even though I was challenging convention. Yeah. And God bless the chairman of the department. He said, okay. I said, I want, I, I want to be chief resident, but on the condition that I can have a ward where almost nobody gets drugs and where we don't forcibly confine people. He, I'll spare you his profanity in the interest <laughs> of your ears, our listeners, but basically said, I said, all right, I'm gonna give you a chance to do this, but if you mess up, I'm gonna cut your throat. <laughs> oh, wow. But that's amazing that he even gave you the opportunity to do that in such a traditional setting. Yeah, well, it was a wonderful thing at that time in the late 60s at, at Einstein, certainly. And there was this openness. Not all, the, not all, some of my supervisors were 
horrified. Others were supportive. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I created a ward where people could come, people with psychosis, and where they could be, and these are this is the words of Lang, they could be guided and guarded as they went through this experience. And, and I visited Lang in London, spent a couple of weeks in the therapeutic community that he had created called Kingsley Hall. And I wrote a cover story for The Atlantic about Lang and that experience of working with psychotic people without medication. So I did it and the results were impressive to me in many ways. Um, we created, again, set and setting. We created a place where the patients were respected. Their opinion was respected as much as the staff's or my opinion. Yeah. And where we gave them a chance to, to be fully human. Oh. And we're, um, we, you know, we were creating a community where we were all participating. I stayed over a couple nights a week. I slept on the men's, the men's dormitory on the ward so I could be there with people, you know, understand what it was like at night. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing experience for me. And uh, incidentally, or perhaps not incidentally, it was the first place where I got familiar with yoga. This is 1971. Oh, nice. Because it, it, I woke up one night in the middle of the night. Uh, the, the staff had told me there are some patients who get up in the middle of the night and they do these strange exercises. I said, are they doing any harm? And they said, no, that didn't look like it. Just kind of weird. I said, well, just let them do it. And I happened to wake up one night at three or four in the morning and I went out in the in the day room and there were these, uh, I think three people doing yoga postures, three oh. patients, young patients. I said, what are you doing? And they, they told me, and I said, how come you're doing this? They said, well, man, it gives us, you know, we can't sleep and it helps us to relax. And, you know, we feel better and we, we feel better about ourselves when we do it. So, okay, that's interesting. And within uh, a year or two, I was studying yoga myself. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Because right there is the connection with body and allowing your body to tell you what to do. These people knew what they needed to do for their bodies, at least those three did. And if, if they were medicated to a point where they couldn't feel that, they wouldn't be able to connect with that innate need. That's right. I oh. think you're absolutely, I didn't think of it at the time, but you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what happened to this, this unit? Like, like you, you created this as the, the chief resident. And so what happened to it? Like, as you went through your, practice? it only went on, I had six months. And okay. people came from, I was working in a state hospital, Bronx State Hospital. Mm -hmm. So people came from other wards. They heard, once they heard what was going on, they said, oh, oh man, I won't be part of that. Right, <laughs> so, right. yeah. And you know, these were people, many of whom had been in the hospital for years. Okay. And then people came because of the article in the Atlantic. So mm -hmm. people from around the United States got in touch with me. So it was a very interesting experiment. And I think it was particularly helpful for people who were having their first psychotic break. Okay. That, that uh, and I'm still in touch with a couple of those people periodically. Mm -hmm. And it helped them not become, I believe, I, we never did a controlled study or all that, but, yeah. but I believe it helped them not become chronic mental patients, oh, that yeah. they were able to go through and learn from this first psychosis. For people who had been diagnosed schizophrenic and hospitalized for many years. I don't think it had, it didn't have that same kind of dramatic effect, but they had six months of being treated with respect and they had a sense of, um, a better sense of themselves, even if they had to remain in the hospital and, 
uh, on, on another ward afterwards. Mm -hmm. I took the lessons of that ward uh, with me as I went to the National Institute of Mental Health and I brought them into the work that I did there. Uh, initially with runaway and homeless kids on the street and then in, in all the work I did afterwards. Yeah. I mean, when I hear something like this, I think you had some some really great experiences and sure there isn't like, you know, a controlled study around it, but but people felt better. They did things that that allowed them to not get into that cycle of chronic psychosis and psychological um, challenges. So you wonder why aren't more. I mean, this is this is a long time ago and we're still fighting the fight to get these things as part of a traditional program. Because um, but, we're still stuck in the medical model and because yeah, it's, yeah. it makes money. Yeah. I'll tell you well, a story. You right. I Yoga does it, not make money. <laughs> years later, when I was uh, a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, I was invited to give a talk at a, an extremely prestigious psychiatric organization. All leaders in psychiatry were there. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy who'd been my chief resident when I was first year resident at Einstein invited me. He was professor of psychiatry okay. at a major medical school. And uh, I gave a talk saying how this integrative approach in which people were given tools to understand and help themselves, in which uh, we, it was important to provide group support, in which, in which drugs uh, were a last resort rather than a treatment of choice, and people were given tools like exercise and meditation and nutrition, which could change their brain chemistry in the similar ways to the drugs, but without any negative side effects and with lots of benefits. I gave a talk and I said, this is this model, this integrative model or holistic model, this is the medicine of the future. And psychiatrists should be the leaders in the medicine of the future because we're the ones who are supposed to understand human behavior and supposed to, you know, to, to, to respect all aspects of people's lives. And after, you know, I, I got a lot of applause. Uh, and afterwards I went, went out to lunch with my um, former chief resident. He said, Jim, great talk. He said, lots of people, so many people have said how good it was, but did you notice there were some people who weren't copying? I said, as a matter of fact, I did because it was, there's a whole sort of a small, not so small, there are 500 people in the audience, maybe it was 20, 30 people, mm -hmm. and they seem to be sitting together. Mm -hmm. He said, do you know who they were? I said, no, I have no idea who they are. How would I know who they are? He said, those were the chairman of the departments of psychiatry. Oh. And their livelihood depends on drug companies. Mm. Drug companies support what they do in the department, just as they support the psychiatric journals. Your model challenges all of that. So that's why it's not, I, I think that the lack of intellectual interest and the lack of collective commitment to this model is shaped by ideology, the ideology, the biomedical ideology, where doctors were in charge, we tell people what to do, mm -hmm. kind of domination rather than partnership. Right. even though they sometimes give lip service to a therapeutic partnership right. and economic interests. If yeah. you can make the same amount by sitting with a patient for 10 minutes and writing out a script as you make by sitting with them for an hour and talking with them, that's a temptation that many people succumb to. And they have all kinds of rationalizations for that. And of course, the same is true in medicine sure. in primary care. 
Most yeah. of the visits are 10 or 12 minutes. Some of them are five minutes. That's no way to work with people with chronic illness. Right. So they, we have the blinders on, the professions have the blinders on because to significant degree, because they're still in a biomedical model. They haven't seriously questioned it. And because they're still, um, because there are these economic incentives that push us in the direction of not being holistic or integrative or truly respectful of the people with whom we're working. Yeah, that that's unfortunate, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that it's a, a big boulder we're pushing up a hill that that really um, the hill keeps getting a little bit bigger each time. Um, but tell me about the work that you're doing and when you decided to to create the Center for Mind Body Medicine and move into that model, um, because that's that's really the the crux of some of the work that you've done all over the world that that I'd love to talk about. Sure. Well, I, I was at NIMH for. 11, 12 years, it's a great experience um, in many, many ways. I had a great deal of freedom. I've investigated all kinds of things. I, I was able to uh, use some of my time to look at acupuncture and Chinese medicine, herbalism, uh, to uh, explore nutritional therapies and all kinds of movement. And um, I looked at homeopathy, I learned about manipulation uh, you know, I had all this experience, and I also had a uh, a teacher who was deeply versed in many of the, in Chinese medicine and Western natural medicine and osteopathy. So I was learning all these things. And when I left NIMH, I, I went into private practice, um, and I uh, wrote. I used to write a good deal for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and I wrote some scientific articles. And I saw patients and. It was good. And I organized a program for medical students, a, a national mentorship program. But I, I wanted to do something on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to influence what was happening in all of medicine. And, and it became clear to me, uh, even though I was a clinical professor at Georgetown and enjoyed that, I, I couldn't do this at Georgetown. They, they were not going to give me a a full-time salary to challenge what they were doing. It was just not, <laughs> not gonna happen. Really? Uh, and uh, so I, I decided I, I need to create an organization, an independent organization that can support people who are interested in bringing this new model into their own lives, to their own work, to the institutions and the communities where they were working. And so I started the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in 1991. No money no paid staff. Um, the idea was to bring self-awareness, self-care and group support into the center of all healthcare, the training of all health professionals and the education of our children. And we began to create a curriculum that could train people to do that. So that's how it started. Mm -hmm. And um, I had 25 volunteers. There were doctors and nurses and teachers and therapists of various kinds. and. We had one guy who was a professional gambler. Oh. I took to be a good omen for us. <laughs> right. Well, those people are pretty smart, right? I mean, they... Exactly. He was very smart. We all did research on different, um, you know, different, different topics, which we thought might be part of a curriculum we were creating. And what interested him was maternal infant bonding. Oh. He did a lot of research on that. So we started moving ahead and we initially, uh, and this is important when people ask me, well, 
how should I start using what you're doing? You know, uh, right. and I say, start where you are. Mm. Don't you don't have to do anything huge to begin with. You don't have to give up your practice, whatever it might be. Mm. Start by bringing in what you're learning and the new perspective you have into what you're doing. So we did that. And we began working uh, with, I brought it into my own practice, encouraged the other people to bring it into their practice. We began to create groups to maximize our capacity to teach people how to take care of themselves. And also it was not only more efficient and, and more cost efficient, it was also more interesting, more fun and more supportive if you're learning self-care techniques in a group rather than having to do it on your own. Yeah, so that's how we started. And the, the first project, first major project that we, um, we began just doing, you know, what, whatever we could in, in, in the Washington DC area and working with groups of people. But our first major project was with Latino high school students who were mostly refugees from the war in El Salvador, who were interested in the health professions combining them with Georgetown medical students who wanted to be mentors. And we taught them a course in mind-body medicine. And then the, the high school students visited the medical students and they watched a dissection of a cadaver and they, you know, and the medical students helped them with college applications. And so that was our first program. And yes. it was where I worked where I could because I had a friend who ran the Latin American Youth Center and she, you know, loved me, loved my work. And so she was open to it. Yes. And it was a good project. And we were able to get funding because a foundation said, that's a worthwhile project. These kids have really had gone through hell. Yeah. Um, some of them lost their parents. Most of them were here by themselves. So we were able to get some funding because it made sense to local funders. So everything grew from there. That's a really good point that you made. Just start where you are, because so many people feel like, oh, I've got to go off and get this extensive training or I've got to do this or I've got to do that. But you can take little pieces and parts and just embed it right into what you're doing already. If that's where your passion is to give people um, exposure to some of these these tools, which we're definitely going to talk about the tools because your book is just chock full of of tools that can can create self-efficacy. So and then it expanded. Right. So you started here in D.C. and and then. Yeah, it, and it worked. Uh, so we were we trained. We we needed a dozen people uh, to to expand the work. It was uh, Mary Lee Esty was a psychologist, social worker, and I were, you know, seeing people, leading groups, supervising a few people. But we needed more people because there was such a big demand. So we said, let's do a training, and let's get a dozen people who want to be trained here in the local area. Well, thirty people signed up. And we did the training with those 30 and they all formed groups, you know, groups with people with cancer or heart disease or stressed out DC professionals or whatever, whatever of, those. of whom there are many. Yes. A whole universe of them. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, it worked well. So we said, okay, well, let's do it. Let's bring this nationally. And so we picked a dozen of those 30, uh, including Mary Lee and myself to be faculty. And we said that we'll do a training for 120 people. And lo and behold, uh, it was a seven day training, 120 people from all over the United States showed up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, so we began, from the beginning, I knew I wanted to be a primarily educational organization. I didn't want to set up a big clinic. I wanted to teach people and help people to create this model for themselves 
in the institutions or in the communities where they were working. Not, uh, not just to set up a single, you know, wonderful clinic, but to help many, many people do right. their work many places. So that's how we began to expand and that continued. And then at a certain point, um, a friend of mine said to me, um, Jim, this is 1996. Jim, do you want to go to Bosnia? Mm. You should you should bring your Center for Mind-Body Medicine to Bosnia. And I said, um, Lorna, that was her name. I, I don't, this is just after the Dayton Accords were signed, ending the war uh, right. in Bosnia, where 250,000 people were killed. I said, Lorna, you know, um, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I'm never going to speak the language. The uh, Serbs, uh, the Serbs and the uh, Bosniaks and the uh, Catholics, they've been, uh, you know, they've been at each other for 700 years. Uh, the climate is terrible. I don't know that I want to go there. And then I said, it just came to me. I said, but I want to go to Mozambique because I want to see if we can work with the former child soldiers. The war, two, there were two wars. There was a war of liberation and then a civil war in Mozambique. So a colleague, my colleague, uh, Dr. Susan Lord, and I went to Mozambique, where a friend of mine, as it happened, uh, was the head of the World Bank. Oh. And uh, he said, yeah, come, great, come here. I'll introduce you to the people I can have connections. But you have to go to South Africa, too and see what's happening uh, as they're getting over apartheid. So we did that. And um, I saw that this model that we could teach the techniques that I teach in transforming trauma that we've been using at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, you know, like slow deep breathing and shaking and dancing and mental imagery and drawings and all these techniques that we could use those with former child soldiers mm. who had done the most horrible things you can imagine and been subjected to even worse things. One of, the, one of the means of recruitment was to either to have the kid kill his parents or to kill the parents in front of the kid. Whoa. Breaking all ties with that society. Unbelievable. And then they would drug the kids up and then the kids would kill other people and they would become, you know, these killing machines. Militants, yeah. But they were trying to, you know, there's a process of rehabilitation and they, former child soldiers we didn't spend a lot of time with him but it was clear that what we had to offer could be helpful and same thing in south africa i was working with people who'd lost family members susan and i were at the hospital um, in soweto and also in uh, johannesburg mm -hmm. and um it was clear that what we had to offer could be helpful so i came back to the united states i said okay lorna let's go to bosnia Right, right, right. All the barriers that you had had thought of were in place just sort of like came down because you saw this being so effective in so many other places with yeah. people that maybe you thought, you know, wouldn't even understand or connect to what you're doing. So I think it's just so that's an amazing story in terms of, of just how you came from 30 people in the beginning to having this this global impact on on some really intense populations of people dealing with some incredible trauma and going back to the fact that trauma we need, need not compare um, my trauma to their trauma 
Yeah, and one thing that's important for listeners to understand is that those people who've been in the middle of wars, they're not the people who are doing the comparing. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if uh, subsequently, you know, we've done groups where some people have lost their whole family, other people may have lost a house or may have just, you know, uh, lived through a war. And, and, and the people who lost 20 members of their family don't have uh, contempt or scorn and don't put down the people who suffered less mm-hmm. at all. It's not even nowhere on their minds. The people who suffered perhaps less dramatically who were worried, oh, my trauma is not. Exactly. That's really not helpful. And not the fascinating helpful. thing is that everyone, when we get those people in a group together, whether it's in a training program or a therapeutic group, uh, they realize, you know, we're all in this together. We've all suffered. We're all human. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, you know, they recognize the difference. Nobody denies yeah. the horrible impact of having so many family members killed. But there's not that emphasis on this is worse than that's not so bad. Right, right, right. My trauma is is different than your trauma. It's all trauma and, and relative to each person. What, what you, I really, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to just say that that what I really love about what you um, set forth in in all your programs as well as as the book is that there's there's so many different levels of things that people can do. You know, it med- sitting in meditation and quiet meditation is not the only way that you can access some of this. And you've just got so many great tools that people can use for particularly different people in different places, wherever they are, wherever they might be at that moment but also knowing that this is not a a linear path, right? That sometimes you need one thing that works for you at a certain period of time and another period of time, you might need something else. And so if, if we can, like if you'd like to move into some of the tools and maybe helping people understand what those tools are, the small toolbox, the bigger toolbox and what you can use them for. Great. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. In in fact, what, what you say is absolutely correct is that we're all different. We're all biochemically different. We're all psychologically different. And certain things appeal to some people and don't appeal to other people. The, the point, and again, this is the medical, the medical model says you've got to fit into, this is the yeah. algorithm and this is the supposed, no, here are the tools and let us help you see how they work. Let's give you the science and give you the experience mm-hmm. in a general way. We begin with three things. First of all, the understanding that trauma comes to everyone and that it is possible to move through and beyond trauma. And that's my understanding. And in transforming trauma, I give some pretty dramatic examples of people who've been horribly traumatized, who come through using these tools, Mm -hmm. come through their trauma, come out on the other side, healthier and more whole than they've ever been in their life. So that's an understanding. And then two tools. One is slow, deep, soft belly breathing, breathing in through the nose. And our listeners can do this uh, as they're listening to us and as we're talking and out through the mouth with the belly soft and relaxed. What this does is mobilize the vagus nerve which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. It is the antidote to the fight or flight response, the antidote to the stress response. It quiets fear and anxiety. 
decreases heart rate, lowers blood pressure, improves digestion, relaxes the big muscles in our body, makes it easier for us to think clearly and mobilize our imagination. Just this one simple tool. Yeah. And there's a huge body of research. Yeah. So that's first. Second tool is when we are seriously traumatized or we've been under chronic stress uh, and we feel overwhelmed and we feel the stress is inescapable. We, we have, may have fight or flight response. We may also go into what's been more recently described as the freeze response. Fight or flight was described 100 years ago, freeze 20, 30 years. And that means we shut down and I'm sort of hunching over and putting, you know, grabbing my shoulders with my hands in a kind of protective posture. We put out endorphins to numb the pain and we numb ourselves psychologically so we don't feel it. So I've worked a lot with people who've been tortured, um, you know, repeatedly raped or, you know, electrocuted, all these horrible, horrible things that dictatorships do. What those people say is, after a bit, I didn't feel anything. I was looking at myself from the corner of that cell. I was watching what was happening to me. That's the freeze response. So to break up after that trauma is over, we get people up moving their bodies, perhaps shaking, which is a biological built into our biology, um, a way of releasing the freeze response. And giving people an opportunity to shake, and anybody can do this. You don't, you know, yeah. this doesn't cost money. You just stand up, <laughs> put on some fast rhythmic music, bend your knees and shake your body. See what happens. Well, um, you know, I, I wanted to mention, and I, as I was thinking about that, and, and you came to the clinic and did it with all of us when I was at the Center for Functional Medicine too, but, but when I was younger, um, my sister and I would do this thing where we'd kind of like move around in the front yard and we'd pretend we had no arms and our arms. Were... And I thought, you know, I bet that was something because I, I kind of had a little trauma in my, I had quite a bit of trauma in my, my childhood. Um, a great resilient mom who helped us through that. But I started to think, oh my gosh, I wonder if that was something that innately we felt like, okay, we just kind of like let our bodies flow and let our arms just kind of go. It felt good. Absolutely. You, and you knew it. How old, how old were you then? Oh my gosh. I mean, we did it probably four or five, like we're out in the front yard, just waving Fantastic. our arms around. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's knew? such a beautiful thing, Karen, because what this says and, and what, what our techniques do ultimately is they help people tune into exactly that. What do I need to do now? Yeah. So if you do the shaking and dancing, then, um, and you get that sense of what your body needs, then you you keep that with you. And when you get, my, my medical students at Georgetown, for example, before an exam, many of them told me what they would do is they go into the men's or the women's room or whatever, whatever restroom they were using, they go into a stall, They'd shut the door of the stall and they'd shake for five minutes <laughs> so they wouldn't be so nervous when they went to their exam. That's great. It's perfect. It works fantastic. Well. So that's the beginning that brings, if, 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 as people begin to practice with, understand that they, it is possible to move through and beyond trauma, that they can quiet the agitation, the anxiety, the sleeplessness that comes when you've been traumatized, that they can also free themselves up 
when they're in the freeze response, then it becomes so much easier to use all the other techniques we teach, the mental imagery that can be used in so many ways. The drawings, we use drawings and for people who can write written exercises so people can discover what's inside themselves and bring it out. We encourage people to keep a journal. Um, we use um, genograms, family trees to help people explore both the sources of the trauma and the sources of the strength that are there. You mentioned your mother. So if you were doing your, you know, if you were doing your genogram, your family tree, and there was, I'm just making this up, there was stress coming from your father or another family member, and you yeah. draw these jagged lines showing the conflict. Um, as you did the genogram and you drew, you might draw two lines of support between you and your mother. Mm -hmm. And you have discovered that you've used this tool to discover that, that source of support. So now I might say to you, Karen, you're going through a rough time now. Uh, is there any place you, you, that you might want to go? And if your mother's alive, you might say, you know, yeah, I, 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 maybe I should call my mama. If she's not alive, uh, and this works quite well too, maybe, maybe I ought to just, you know, think about my mother or use one of those guided imageries that you've taught us to bring my mother to mind and ask her, use my imagination to ask her in my imagination what I should do. Yes, yes, yes. My sadly, my mom is is not present anymore. But but that's sort of the wise guides that you're talking about, right? The exactly that you can bring, and that doesn't have to be. You can explain it better than I can. But it doesn't have to be a person that was in your past. It could be an animal. It could be something that you don't know who that that guide is, but it's someone that you connect with. Yeah, and, and the technique that we use, and people can you know I, the whole script is there in transforming trauma, and also at the Center for Mind Body Medicine website cmbm.org, you can see me, you know, teaching this guided imagery technique and teaching soft belly and teaching shaking and dancing. But what we do is we, um, first of all, get people uh, to begin with soft belly breathing so they can relax, then imagine themselves in a safe or comfortable place. That's a beginning, but it also can be a separate mm -hmm. tool to use. Very helpful when you feel threatened by everything around you, been very helpful during this pandemic yeah. for people to imagine that they're in a safe and comfortable place. And then if you want to go on with this experiment, and I like to think of these as experiments, uh, you, you allow a guide to come to you with your eyes closed as you're sitting comfortably in your safe place. And as I'm doing that right now, my guide happens to be a dragonfly. Yeah. I'm not expecting that. And that's the beauty of this, that we're, we're always changing and that the source of wisdom and understanding in us is going to be different at different times. So I might have a conversation with this dragonfly. I've got a, I've got a tough meeting coming up later on today. Somebody's going to be asking me really hard questions. What do I do? And the dragonfly says, man, you relax and just smile. Just be yourself. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> That's just one piece of advice. Dragonfly might have said, uh, do some yoga stretches. The dragonfly might have said, uh, put off the meeting till next week. I don't know what, the, but I had no idea what the dragonfly is going to say. Sure. But the dragonfly who represents my intuition, my imagination, my unconscious, Jung, Carl Jung called it the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. Shamans might call it the spirit world. 
I don't yeah. care what you call it. That's right, not right. important. Just do the experiment, see what happens and see if it benefits you. And that you open yourself up to it, right? Like some people might go, oh, well, there's a dragonfly, but that can't mean anything. I've got to wait for something else. I got to wait for something else. So I'm not getting the message that I need. It's really open your mind up and what comes to you is likely what you need. You just have to allow that, right? Exactly. I'll tell you a little story. Do you have a minute to tell a story yes, about that? Yes, yes, yes. Just that. I was in Dharamsala, which is the Dalai Lama's headquarters, and they had invited me to come to uh, lecture at the, the medical school. A group of us uh, came. And um, then I, uh, I said, yeah, I'm here. Uh, but I said, I, I, in addition to giving lectures to a bunch of you know, Tibetan doctors and experts, I, I want to work with people who are going through a hard time. I'm here. So they brought together 200 refugee kids in school. There's a school for refugee kids. And I, I did an hour and a half workshop with these 200 kids and their teachers and some of the Tibetan physicians. And I got them up shaking and dancing and doing the whole thing. And uh, afterwards, one of the doctors said, would you do some individual consultations? And I said, well, I don't usually do individual consultations, but okay, I'm, I'm your guest. And I was expecting, you know, three or four people would show up. There were 25 kids showed up. There's this line. And I started working individually with the first two kids. And I saw it took 15 or 20 minutes with each kid. I said, I can't, this is, I'll be here all night. I said, I want to work with all of you as a group. So we did some soft belly breathing. We did some shaking and dancing. Uh, and then we did the guided imagery, including the wise guide image. And uh, one young guy, and these are all kids who were refugees from Tibet. They fled the Chinese yeah. who were, would have been perfectly happy to kill them. Sure. Uh, so they, and they came to Dharamsala and the north of India where the Dalai Lama's headquarters were. So one kid said, uh, the kids talked about their guided imagery and they had great, many of them had great experiences. One kid said, uh, uh, doctor, I, I, have a, I had a problem. And I said, but what about those of you who didn't have such a good experience, who had difficulty? Always want to hear about difficulties. Right. One kid raised his hand. He said, doctor, I had, I had a difficulty. He said, you, you said we should go on a road to a, our safe place. I got very nervous on the road because I imagined Chinese soldiers were pursuing me. That was the last time I was out on a road. Then I got to a safe place and it was very beautiful and it was a garden and there were flowers all around. And oh, I was very happy there and I loved that. Then you said, let a guide come to you. And, um, I, um, and the only one that came was a butterfly. And I said to the butterfly, no, I am waiting for a Tibetan monk to come <laughs> and he said and then the butterfly disappeared and but the tibetan monk didn't come and then a little while later the butterfly came back and i said no butterfly didn't you hear me i said i am waiting for a tibetan monk he said and this went on again he said doctor and by this time he was getting it he said doctor what 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 should i do i said i think you know he said yes Next time, talk to the butterfly. I said, you got it. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think that happens in so many ways in our lives that we're waiting for something and we're looking for something, yet we're not seeing what's right there for us in the moment. And, 
And that's that's part of you know the self-efficacy that you're you're talking about with this and knowing that it, it can come from within and that it's probably very present right there for you we just aren't paying attention to it that awareness is is really that first level right exactly exactly yeah, yeah that's a beautiful story i love it um and and definitely you know there's there's so many tools in this book i i just can't and stories and connections with people that that found things that they didn't think they were going to find and and moved through this process as you talk about um so i, I mean i can't i can't recommend the book enough um and truly i just feel like it's it's a manual right it's it's something that people can use they don't have to go somewhere else they can pick up this book get it from the library and and start using these tools right away one of the questions that popped into my head i, I kind of wanted to ask you know if you have time to explain a little bit about what trauma actually does to the brain and what we might know happens to the brain after people have been able to use some of these techniques because we now know that there is evidence to show changes in the brain structurally when you start these practices uh, absolutely uh and we're, and we're really just at the beginning of, of knowing what's going on so uh, in a, a basic way uh, trauma can disrupt every brain function, and not only brain function, and maybe we can talk about this for a minute as well, but also digestive functioning and the functioning of every system in our body. So uh, what it does essentially is it, max, is it hypes up activity in the amygdala, A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A, it's a Greek word again, meaning almonds. It's an almond-shaped portion of the emotional brain. It's a center for fear and anger. And we need that center to, you know, like when there's a threat, we need to be mobilized to fight or flight. The problem is when we've been traumatized and we haven't resolved it, activity continues. The amygdala continues to uh, fire more frequently to grow in size, actually grow in size. Meanwhile, the area in the areas of the frontal cortex, frontal part of the cerebral cortex, that are responsible for thoughtful decision-making and self-awareness and compassion, are depressed, they're shut down somewhat. And the connections between the vagus nerve, which is one of our cranial nerves, one of the nerves that comes out of our, our head, mm -hmm. and some of the other nerves become less effective. So we're less able to tune into other people's speech mm -hmm. because the nerve that has to do with speech isn't as well connected to the vagus nerve. And similarly, the nerves of facial expression. This is this latter piece is Stephen Porges's work oh, right. on poly polyvagal theory. Very interesting work. So we are isolated. We're not only we're not thinking so clearly. We're in a state of anxiety and agitation. We can't use our imagination, and we can't have those healing connections with other people that we need. Mm. When we use the techniques, and I'll focus because the research has been done on techniques like soft belly breathing, both concentrative meditations like soft belly breathing where you're concentrating on the breath and on the belly being soft and relaxed and on the word soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out and mindfulness techniques becoming aware of your thoughts feelings and sensations all decrease activity in the amygdala enhance activity in the frontal cortex improve connectivity between the vagus nerve and the other nerves, the other cranial nerves. 
So they reverse the damage that is done with trauma. And um, some of the research, uh, particularly done at, at Harvard, at UC San Francisco, two places, a lot of research has been done, show the changes that these techniques can make in the brain. So by meditating as little as 20 minutes a day, and that may seem a lot to some people, and I understand that, but the original studies on meditation were done with people who'd spent all their lives meditating or meditating hours a day. Subsequent studies were done on people who are experienced meditators meditating 40 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. More recently, we've discovered that even meditating for less can reverse some of the changes that are there, some of the changes that come about in trauma. The amygdala shrinks in size. The frontal cortex becomes more robust. The connectivity increases. So there's not only change in brain function, uh, but there's also change in brain structure. The hippocampus, which is an important part of the emotional brain for memory, as well as for mediating uh, and mitigating trauma, is, uh, is damaged when we're traumatized and that damage is repaired through these meditation techniques. And that's just one technique. Uh, that's an, another technique that's really important. Uh, another sort of whole suite of techniques are those that work with nutrition because trauma damages our gastrointestinal tract just as much as it damages our brain brain connection for sure i mean we understand that from the vagus nerve and one example out of many of what happens is when we um when we are traumatized the microbiome the the bacteria the trillions of bacteria that live in our gastrointestinal tract the balance in the microbiome can be significantly disrupted and so the bad to simplify the bad bacteria multiply the good bacteria are suppressed. What happens is that affects the vagus nerve, we're now finding out, Mm -hmm. because the vagus nerve is bringing back signals from the small intestine where these bacteria are and bringing back signals to the brain. And the good bacteria are telling the vagus nerve, um, I'm being a little anthropomorphic here, but they're telling the vagus nerve, go back to the brain, repair the damage that's done. But when damage is done to the microbiome, the vagus nerve cannot send those signals. And so um, brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, which is important in rebuilding traumatized brains, does not get activated in the same way. The amygdala doesn't get told to slow down in the same way. The frontal cortex doesn't get told to build up because the vagus nerve is not getting the right signals from the gastrointestinal tract. That's just one example among many. So the longest chapter in my book, and just turned out this way, uh, is on the trauma healing diet. Because the books on trauma, uh, the ones that I've read, and I've read most of them, do not talk about the importance of nutrition or only in, in, in passing. It is crucially important. We can go a long way to enhancing our recovery from trauma. And this is what I teach as part of a comprehensive program by making some very simple positive changes in our diet. Restoring the microbiome by eating foods that rebuild the microbiome, as well as by doing some supplements of probiotics. Very simple, no negative side effects. The the worst that will happen is you'll feel better. 
and you, <laughs> <laughs> and you won't be as prone to chronic illness. The best that will happen is, you'll, in addition, you'll be seeing some reversal of, very quickly of some of the symptoms of trauma. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the nutrition piece is so key. I mean, food is medicine, and that's that's really one of the basic tenets of functional medicine. To add that into what you're talking about, so incredibly important. I know when I, even when I worked as a medical speech pathologist with mild traumatic brain injury, um, we talked about a heart-healthy diet. I wasn't a, I'm not a dietitian in Ohio. You you have to be a dietitian to make sure that you talk about that stuff. But under the, the guise of, of some of the physicians I work with, it's, 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 it's a critical piece you can't leave out. I mean, we, we know that. And you can't get all your nutrients from, from food. So supplements are super important. Particularly when you've been traumatized. Yeah. yeah. Because the need for nutrients is much greater because we're under tremendous stress. It makes sense mm-hmm. that yeah. we need, would need more nutrients. So there's a great deal we can do with diet. There's a wonderful study that was done in New Zealand. You mentioned supplements, randomized controlled trial after the earthquake in in New Zealand of a multivitamin, multimineral, Mm -hmm. and showing that, so the people who took took it didn't know it was placebo controlled. Uh, Those people who took the multivitamin, multimineral had significantly fewer symptoms of post-traumatic stress than those people who didn't. That was the only variable. Wow. And they've repeated that study. So why not? Right. There's, no, right. there's no damage that comes. There's no damage that comes from taking a probiotic. No, but, definitely not. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the other point, um, sort of building on what you said, is people worry, I'm not, an, I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a nutritionist. I, I can't give nutritional advice. Well, but you can see, you can, you can learn about it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can suggest people look at resources. You can educate. Education is not, um, it's not regarded as practicing medicine without a license. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not telling people how many macros to follow, but I'm saying here, these are some good fats. These are some, some ways of thinking about nutrition that support your brain health. And we also know too, that that stress and trauma, you know, from, from an evolutionary perspective, shut down your gut's ability to break down foods and use digestive enzymes to kind of break that food down. So from a physiological perspective, what we're talking about is that it's just not happening. You know, if you're in that stress state and more people are in a stress state eating than they know, right? Slow down, do a breath practice, do soft belly breathing before you eat. Yeah. And when we're under stress, we tend to people have different reactions. A lot of people tend to eat more and fast. Other people tend not to eat at all. So mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Neither yeah. of which is terribly helpful. There, yeah. Um, so amazing kind of information here. I think um, everything that you've talked about is is so accessible for people. You know, your website has so much great information, videos, um, meditations, all of those things. Um, I'm going to link to the show notes and and a lot of the stuff that we talked about here, Stephen Porges polyvagal theory, I'll definitely link all of that stuff so that the listeners can have access to um, researching that stuff on their own, as well as the book and some of the other tools. Yeah, one point that I want to make in this context is we've done research on our model, which is the model that I'm teaching in transforming trauma. And we've published maybe 25 studies. Okay. And studies that we've done on people who've been traumatized uh, show 
that as many as 80 to 85% of people who qualify for the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, who do the comprehensive program that I present in Transforming Trauma uh, in a group setting for 10 weeks or 12 weeks, no longer qualify for the diagnosis, 80 to 85% after those 10 or 12 weeks. And those gains hold at three and seven and 10 months follow-up. Wow. Now, there are people uh, who have been traumatized for a very long time. For example, Vietnam vets mm -hmm. with whom we've worked. And we see these exactly these kinds of powerful changes after 10 or 12 weeks. However, they're not maintained at the same level. So ongoing work, and for some of us who've experienced significant early childhood trauma, people who are dealing with a traumatic situation like a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment, there needs to be more support. So I, I wanna say that our research is done on people who experience the groups for 10 or 12 weeks, mm -hmm. but I would encourage people who are listening to us to use the, the, the approach that I present and to use it over a longer period of time. This is not, you need, to, you need to see what's appropriate for you. You need to make these tools a part of your ongoing life. They're exactly what I've been using here during the pandemic. I'm in soft belly breathing and, yeah. and the shaking and dancing and the guided image, all of those, the drawings. The, yeah. So they're yeah. all useful and, and the more you use them, and you mentioned this right at the beginning, Karen, the more tuned in you get to, what do I need to do now? What's, what's right for me? And mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe I should you know, cook a meal mindfully and, uh, and sort of enjoy that taste and do a kind of experiment in mindful eating right now. Or maybe I should walk around the block or maybe I should jump up and down and scream and get out all my frustration. Just do it. As you start tuning in your own, the, the the wisdom that's there inside us, that healer within will tell us so often, not always, but so often what it makes sense for us to do. Yeah, yeah, that, that's beautifully said. How can people connect with some groups? Like you, you talk about the, the group um, context and if people are doing that, how, are there um, resources on your website where people could join groups around the country? Yes, we, we have online groups that, uh, that uh, people we've trained, some of them are our faculty members and some of them are people whom we've certified who are not yet, or they may not be faculty members, but they, they know how to do this work at a very high level. And we're, they're starting groups. You can look on our website, cmbm.org for mind to body skills groups. Okay. And um, there's a sliding scale for these groups. We don't turn people away. so we want people who can afford to pay the full price, which is very reasonable. I think 350 bucks for eight weeks, 16 hours of groups. Yeah. If you can't pay it, pay what you can afford. Yeah. Also, if those who are uh, listening to us who are interested in not only experiencing this work, but experiencing it and then teaching it to others, we have training programs coming up. On, right now, we're doing all our trainings online. And we have training program coming up at the beginning of February and one at the, I think it's the end of, uh, end of March. And uh, if you are interested in learning this approach, it's the approach I teach in transforming trauma for yourself and experiencing the small group model and also then sharing it with others, 
check into our training. We've trained about 7,000 people now around the world. Most of them are health and mental health professionals, but not all. Mm -hmm. We're training right now, we're working with the US Capitol Police who were so traumatized last January 6th. And we're training a cadre of those police to be able to do this work with the other 2,200 people in their department, with the other cops and the civilians. We've trained veterans who are peer counselors. We've trained teenagers. Um, after the shootings in Parkland, Florida, we trained teenagers from that high school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. They're using our model. We've trained people on the Pine Ridge Reservation, both teenage kids. We've trained counselors and teachers and therapists, but also tribal police and traditional healers to use our model. So if you're interested and want to learn for yourself and then want to share with others, please check in, look at look at our training program. We, we, we welcome you to that training program. Oh, and, and, you know, many, many thanks for for training all of these different people, because that's the, the model that you've created. Instead of creating a clinic, as you said, you wanted to educate because you realize you can reach so many more people. And, and training the police staff to, to understand these kind of techniques is, is so key because that's, that's a really traumatic situation that they're seeing people um, coming in and, and being part of, of whatever tragedy might be occurring so that you have such a wide body of, of tools as well as ways to reach people, I'm, I'm so grateful for. And I'm glad to be able to share that with so many people that, that listen to the podcast and get the word out there. So really, you know, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast and sharing so much of this great information and, and some of the techniques and the tools that are just accessible for everyone who wants it. Thank so, you, Karen. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and sharing this with you and, and, and all of our listeners. So it's, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Gordon, for being part of the new season of Full Capacity Living podcast. I really hope that you got so much information from that conversation. I know I did. Um, all of the links for things that we spoke about in the podcast are um, on the website and loaded underneath the heading of the Apple podcast. So please make sure to get to the website and find all of those links to the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, um, Dr. Gordon's work, um, the articles he's written in um, The Atlantic, also polyvagal theory, um, and so much more. You know, this, this conversation, I think, is starting out 2022 in a great way, um, knowing that even through the COVID experience that we've had, we've all experienced some sort of level of trauma. And I do think it's really important not to compare my trauma to someone else's trauma. Um, I think that the challenging situations that we've uh, all experienced, we can acknowledge those, but we also know that there are tools to work through those things and tools to create a better life. When you focus on the good, the good gets better. So, Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the Full Capacity Living podcast. And as always, you know, if this if this episode spoke to you, please make sure you go ahead and rate and review the podcast. Share it with anyone that you think would benefit from this. And I appreciate you being here. 
Um, We're back on track for podcasts every couple of weeks, so stay tuned. Thanks again.